Turn to Matthew chapter 8. Some of you are going to be familiar with what I'm going to talk about, but it was called the greatest rescue mission of World War II. Toward the end of the war, 1944, the Allied forces were going to try to bomb the oil supply lines of the Nazis. And so they sent almost all of them were almost all American pilots. They went flying over and started bombing these supply lines. Uh, They were anticipating they were going to face some resistance. They were not ready for the fight that the Nazis gave. I mean, they just that anti-aircraft shelling that they received knocked out so many of their planes. In fact, there were 512 Allied airmen that were knocked out of the air. These men that had been bombing these lines and trying to bring the war to an end all of a sudden found themselves ejected out of their planes and they're parachuting into occupied Yugoslavia. And when they when they're flying there, they're they're anticipating that they're going to be captured, perhaps tortured, and then they're going to be killed. And so they're making their way as their parachutes and they start landing in Yugoslavia. And sure enough, there were people that were after him, but it wasn't the Nazis. These these peasants, these Serbians had had set up a plan to rescue any pilot that might be shot down. And so as soon as they saw these these parachutes and all this these planes going down, these Serbian peasants would run up and they would actually come and get these allied soldiers, even though they were in occupied uh, territory, and they hid them in their homes, they fed them, they cared for them, but they actually had a broader plan than just taking care of them while the Nazis are hunting them down. They had what has now been called Operation Halyard. They actually had a secret landing strip. And from August, December through December of 1944, there were a series of evacuations that took place behind enemy lines where all 512 Allied pilots were rescued. Not a single one of them was lost. Now, we see this behind Enemy lines, this activity of rescuing those who are in desperate need of rescue. But when we see Jesus moving in the Gospels, especially when we come to Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 28, we see Jesus behind enemy lines. And there is a question that the world has, and I'm sure that you have it. I've had it. Can Jesus truly rescue those who are farthest from God? Is he capable of literally saving those who are in Satan's grasp, the arch enemy of God? Can Jesus truly bring about a salvation to those who are seemingly without hope? I'd imagine you've wrestled with that question. Perhaps you know of someone you feel like they are so far from God. Their heart is so hardened. Their life is so wicked. They are beyond rescue. Maybe you even thought that about yourself. You knew all the things that I've done. You said to yourself, if, if that was made public, my secret private life or those past years or those wild years of my life, if if that was made known, I, I am most certain that God could not rescue a person like me. Well, that's why these this passage, when you get to Matthew chapter eight, verse twenty eight, going through nine, eight are so critical for understanding because you see Jesus Behind enemy lines. And as we've been making our way through the Gospel of Matthew, 
Matthew is point by point showing that Jesus Christ is indeed God and he is fully capable. He is the promised Messiah. And now, though, we're going to come to see, is he truly Lord of all and can he overcome all evil? That's where we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. Now, we had just seen last week where Jesus tells his men, we're going to cross the sea, the Sea of Galilee. These men had never actually crossed that. They did all of their fishing along the shores. They would never cross the Sea of Galilee. They'd never make that seven-mile span because that was considered Gentile country. That is where the Decapolis was. These were wicked Gentiles, and the Jews would have nothing to do with them. They felt like, we do not belong there. And so when they went through that that storm, they actually felt like this is some sort of satanic opposition. We don't belong here, Jesus, and that's why these forces are rising up here, and yet Jesus shows he has the power even over the natural world where he can simply calm the storm instantly. He can calm the storm in in a geographic setting. He can even calm the storm that rages in us. And so we see that, but now that they're actually making their way across the sea, they're going to start stepping foot in a Gentile country. What are they going to find? And so in chapter 8, verse 28, when he came to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. And they were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. Now, This is super startling, especially to any Jewish audience, because there's some things that are taking place here that would just alarm a first century Jewish reader. First of all, Jesus and these guys, these Jewish men, these disciples, they had no place, uh, no way of being over there. They should have never been there. Furthermore, they actually land right where there is a cemetery. And so this is a place considered unclean. And then you got these. They're described as demon-possessed individuals. you got these two men. They're coming out of these mausoleums in this cemetery, and they're encountering Jesus and this gang, and they're like, what are you doing? This is like, for these disciples who are with Jesus, I am sure they were extremely fearful. They're like, we want no part of this Gentile welcome wagon. I mean, there's a good reason why we never came over here, because look what they're like. Demon-possessed men coming out of caves, and they're coming and they're raging. Well, What in the world would Jesus do with these men? Now, demon possession. There seemed to be an outbreak of it at the time of Christ's ministry. There are several encounters. In fact, we've already encountered where it says that Jesus healed these people that were demon possessed. He literally cast them out. He made these people well. But what is this demon possession? Well, Satan, in his rebellion against God, he actually has a whole influx and like an army of angels that he apparently was able to convince to join in him in this rebellion against God, to join forces with him, to actually allow him to like Satan to be the ultimate ruler and to rebel against God and all righteousness. And so when we talk about someone who is demon possessed, these these fallen angels apparently have the ability to possess an individual. And it's actually, they can actually, more than one could actually be in an individual. They, and they create all sorts of havoc in a person's life. Mark, in chapter 5, Mark 5, gives a lot of detail to this scene. These, these men are, are lacerate themselves. They were tried to bind them with chains. They have some sort of supernatural strength where they could break it. They are running around naked. 
They are the refuse of society. No one will come around them. Surely in these men, these two men's lucid moments, they could just see what they've become. Gnashed bodies, sore. They could see that no one would want them. They are the rejects and the marginalized of society. And so they go and they make their home in these caves. Now, now you need to understand what a graveyard would look like for Jews. They, they would go to a hillside and they'd actually carve out these little rooms. If you're a wealthy person, you might have several rooms where family members would actually be buried. And so in these like little caverns, these demoniacs would go and that's where they would live. Because Jews didn't want to be in a cemetery. They considered that unclean. They had a place where they could be. And so when Jesus shows up, he encounters these two men who are demon possessed. Now, when we even even mention demon possession, you're like, whoa, whoa, a second. There's kind of two uh, extremes, two errors that we need to avoid. The first error is just go, no way. There's no such thing as Satan or demon possession. There's just no way that there's these supernatural beings that have some sort of pact with the devil that are destroying people's lives. And so the first error that you need to avoid is to just outright dismiss it. Can't be, doesn't exist. Let me give you a second error, though, that's extremely prevalent today. And that is not as the error of denying, but rather to be overly fixated upon them. It's almost like a pseudo-spirituality. And you, you encounter this. I've met people and they, they actually like, man, there's, there's a demon over there and there's a demon in your car. And, and they actually, oh, there's, there's someone said these words and that, that, that is demonic and you shouldn't say these sort of things. I even had one person in our church tell me that they had someone over and they said that their lamp was demon-possessed. I've had people say that they needed to remove certain items out of their house, you know, like decorative things. And because there's this pseudo-spirituality where you come across as really holy and spiritually aware by calling out and saying there's a demon in this room or this place is, is forsaken or this little lamp here has got some sort of demonic presence to it. You need to get it out of your house. That is the opposite error that some people fall into where they're just absolutely fixated and focused upon them. But what you need to learn What exactly is this demon possession and what does Jesus have to do about it? Well, first thing you're going to see about demons, things we can learn about them, is they know how to destroy lives. These men living in the tombs, gnashed up, can't be bound even with chains. Their lives are agony. They are homeless. They live in tombs. They have lacerations. They are sick. They are rejected by society. Let me tell you something else we can learn about demons. They know the identity of Jesus. Look at verse 29. They were, remember, verse 28, they were so violent that no one could pass by them. Verse 29, and they cried out. They see Jesus and his men, and they immediately identify Jesus as God the Son. They say, what business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Demons know everything exactly who Jesus is. Now, they had never seen God the Son in human form before, but they absolutely recognized him. They knew this is deity. This is God the Son. They were very well aware of it, and now they're probably thinking that their stronghold, these enemy, this enemy stronghold, is now being overtaken. They were probably not anticipating that Jesus would come in to a place that they were dominating. And so they, they know who he is. They know that they also not only know his identity, 
They know his power. Look at what he says there. Have you come here to torment us before the time? They know that they are ultimately going to be judged by Christ. They know that they face an end. They live and they fight, but they know that they fight for a defeated cause. And yet they do not give up. And so they immediately say, have you come here to torment us before the time? They know there's a time of judgment. Jesus showing up in their little place of stronghold is like, whoa, we did, we're not anticipating this. You, have you showed up to torment us, to bring us into judgment before the time? And let me tell you something else. They ultimately know their eternal destiny. He's, they said, have you came, come here to torment us before this time or literally the time of judgment? They know that they're going to be judged by Christ. There is an abyss that demons are actually presently held. You can find that in Second Peter chapter two, verse four, where they are awaiting judgment. These fallen angels. And they're like, are, have you come here to bring judgment before it's time? They know their end. And so verse 30, we find out that there's not just these two demonic men, the demonically possessed men, but there's also a herd of many swine. Look at verse 30. Now, there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. OK, mind you, what is the most forsaken, unclean animal to a Jew? Pigs, right? And these aren't feral hogs. You're going to find out that they actually have some keepers. There's some guys that are running these sheep, these uh, these pigs. And they're about 2000, according to Mark, his account of this. And so they they see this herd of swine feeding at a distance from them. This is serious Gentile country. You would not find this in Israel. And then verse 31, the demons began to entreat him, saying, if you are going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. They know that Jesus is coming. He, he's there. He is coming to actually cast out these demons from these two men. And so they're saying, if you're going to do this, don't send us into this abyss, this place of judgment, awaiting for your final judgment. Send us into the swine. Now, kind of peculiar. We're not for certain. Why would they make such a request? We, we can learn a few things about these, these demons. They, they seem to want to be in some sort of bodily possession. They can't be in all places at all times. They're not God. They're not omnipresent. They seem to have a preference of actually occupying an individual, or in this case, they're saying, hey, let us at least go into these pigs. Now, why, why would they even say something like that? Well, we're not exactly sure, but let me give you a few ideas. One, that maybe they think that if we could just occupy these swine, we won't have to face, go to this abyss and wait judgment, even though they know judgment is coming. But there may be something more to that. Maybe they know that if they actually occupy these swine and bring about these, these pigs' death, that that will disturb all of the locals. That these people will be more concerned about pigs than people. And, these, and so maybe they're making this request to somehow try to lead that a rebellion where they see that these swine are occupied and then they die and that the people in the village will go, hey, whoever you are, we want no part of you because you're disturbing our lives and our way of life. We're not exactly sure, but they make this plea. They're asking permission to do something. And the demons began, verse 31, to entreat them. If you're going to cast us out, send us into this herd of swine. And Jesus, in verse 32, said to them, go. And they came out. 
And they went into the swine and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. With one word, Jesus says, go. And any sort of demonic possession that had occupied these men's lives, instantly they're gone. We see the amazing power of Jesus. Now, this this miracle is a graphic, visible, powerful lesson of the immensity of evil that these people, these two men were freed from. And let me tell you something else here. If Jesus is going to reverse the curse, he has to be able to overcome Satan and his dominion and those who are aligned with him. He has to be powerful enough to be able to cast out demons and to be able to do so with just his word. Now, that is what is taking place here. Here is a miracle to substantiate that Jesus is able. He sets captives free. And that's one of the things that you and I need to know. It doesn't matter what sort of sin you and I have been involved in. It, you and I can be delivered from danger, from demons, even from the things that would destroy us most. And this is really the mission that the Father sent him to do. Let me give you a couple texts. Colossians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14 says this. God the Father says, He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. You see, Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. And what he has done is Jesus is in the process of taking people who were once in the domain of darkness. They were manipulated, in some cases even demon-possessed, and takes them from this domain of darkness into the kingdom of the Son. And he is fully capable of doing it with just merely a word. And so this is the mission in which he came. He sets captives free. Let me give you another text here. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, listen to this. Paul writes, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? If you are not right with God, you are unrighteous, you cannot inherit God's kingdom. And he says, Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, those who have sex outside of marriage, idolaters, adulterers, people who are married, who are having uh, an intimate relationship with someone else, nor the effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And he says, and such were some of you. See, that's what Jesus does. He rescues people who are lost, absolutely living in their depravity. And he's, he said, Paul says, and such were some of you, but you were washed but you were sanctified. You were set apart to God. And you, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the spirit of God. God is the one who rescues the lost. Even those who are demon possessed. Those who are doing things that are absolutely wicked. They're being controlled by forces outside of themselves. They can be freed, released, and redeemed by Jesus. And this miracle is recorded so that we see that Jesus is a missionary savior. He fully intends to rescue those who are lost. Now, what do you think is going to happen here? Here we have um, two men 
who were released from these demons. Obviously, there was a lot of them. There's all these swine are then occupied by them. This guy must have these two guys must have been a huge wreck. Well, these herdsmen watch this. They see all this. And so look at verse 33. They see all these pigs perishing. They're like, whoa, what 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 is going on? These two, I'm sure they're very familiar with the two guys that ran around the tombs. Maybe they threw rocks at them. Maybe they insulted them. I'm sure they were scared of them. Now they see these guys actually like in their right mind. All of a sudden, like, whoa, what is going on here? So what do you do? You run away. Look at verse 33. So the herdsmen, they ran away. They ran away and they went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. They reported about the pigs. They reported about Jesus, this band of disciples. They reported about what happened to these demoniacs. And they, whoa. Well, how do you think people will respond to this? I mean, can you imagine how cool that would be that now you have people that were once just, they were wicked. They were a nemesis to society. They were demon possessed. And a man, this man, Jesus, he actually freed them. They're probably going to receive him with open arms. They're probably like, oh, salvation has come. Jesus, we want to know everything about you. We want you to live with us. We want you to be here always. We need you. How do you think people respond when you see a great salvation and a real freedom in like these two men's lives? Look at verse 34. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. Look at that. They're all coming. They're all coming to meet Jesus. But I haven't finished the sentence. Look at verse 34. And when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. We don't know who you are. We know that you're very powerful. We want nothing to do with you. Get away from us. Leave our region. We prefer pigs to people. We don't want you. We're afraid of you. We reject you. Leave. Mind you, Jesus is always training his men. Jesus is preparing his men for rejection. For rejection from himself and for what they will face. Don't think that if you go and you proclaim salvation and you see people come to Christ, that people are just going to open up with with arms and say, Oh, I am so glad you came and brought this message of Jesus and salvation. Because the fact of the matter is, people, whether they're demon-possessed, and there's likely not many of them, or people that are just entrapped and enslaved to Satan and his ideals, they don't like the one who has come to set them free. And so Jesus is training these men for a road of opposition and rejection. He himself faced it. Remember, remember when the scribe came and said, hey, listen, I'm going to go with you wherever you go. And Jesus said, really? Remember that? Matthew chapter eight, verse 19. He says, guess what? The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. I will not be popular, though I do the works of God. You want to follow me? You've got to get ready for some pretty serious rejection, because even in the face of a great miracle, I and my people will be despised. But, you know, even in the midst of this, there's great grace. You have two men who have literally changed lives. They went from demon possession to now they're in their right mind. 
And Mark and Luke actually record that they actually implored Jesus, please let us go with you. And Jesus says, no, I want you to stay right here in the Decapolis, in Gentile country. You're Gentiles. And I want you to go and tell the great things that God has done for you. And both Mark and Luke record that these men went and told the great things that Jesus had done for them. You see, this is a story also of great grace, because even in the great, even in the face of great opposition, God always leaves a witness, always has someone that's going to bear testimony that Jesus is the savior. And no one could ever just say, well, you weren't really demon possessed. Everybody knew. And they were walking testimonies. You know what's going on here? This is Jesus behind enemy lines because Jesus is Lord. He is able to overcome all evil. You are safe and secure if you're in Christ. If you are owned by Christ, you can never be owned by a demon. You may be influenced by their ideas or their philosophies or their false religions, but you simply cannot be possessed by another force if you are truly united with Christ, the risen Savior. Well, let me show you something else about Jesus behind enemy lines. If he is Lord, he's not only able to overcome all evil, he's able to forgive sins. These people didn't want Jesus in their country. Get out of here now. Verse 34, leave our region. Well, verse 9, they get back in the boat. Short trip, huh? See, Jesus got a mission. He's teaching and training his men. He's accomplishing his purposes. He's just set notice to the Gentile world. I, am, I can even overcome those who are completely oppressed by demons. Now he gets back in the boat with the guys, and they're going back over. Verse 1, chapter 9. Getting into a boat, Jesus crossed over the sea and came to his own city. Now remember, he set up camp in Capernaum, up there in the northwest part of the Sea of Galilee. So he comes back into Capernaum, and there is a situation that has taken place. He is now going to be in a particular home, must be a fairly large home, and he is teaching. Now Matthew just gives us highlights Luke and Mark actually fill in a lot of details of what is going on here. But Matthew wants us to know in chapter nine, verse two, that they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. The scene is such that Jesus is actually teaching in a home. This home is apparently packed with people. Many of them are Pharisees and scribes, these religious leaders. They are trying to figure him out. Jesus, through his miracles, the Sermon on the Mount is gaining a huge following. And we're going to find just in a little bit here, even in verse three, that these scribes are trying to figure him out. They're actually trying to nail him because now Jesus is infringing on their territory. People are following after him, clamoring after him. Some are perhaps even saying he is the promised son of David and they want nothing of it. They want to catch this guy, nail him, get him killed and get him, get him out just out of their whole society because he is wrecking havoc among the people because people are believing in him. Well, in this scene, we find that there is a man who is paralyzed and he is brought to Jesus on a bed. Now, when, when someone's paralyzed, their brain and the rest of their body is not there's a communication problem. There's they're not able. The signals are mixed or, or absolutely severed. And so to be a paralyzed man 2000 years ago would be an extremely difficult situation. It is difficult at any time to be paralyzed today. 
extremely difficult. But in the time of Jesus, why, it, it was horrific. And it's, it's more than just the physical. You see, the thought was that if you were suffered some sort of great disease or that you were paralyzed, the idea was that you actually were responsible or your parents were responsible for your condition because of some sort of sin. And what people would do is they would actually shun them. They were stigmatized. They needed people. And yet the thought was that it was because of some sort of sin that you did or perhaps your parents did that led to your serious situation. And so they became like the refuse of society. They were neglected. They were stigmatized. And it was it would became more and more in their mind about just how bad they must be because of their horrible condition in which they lived. Now, you even find this in, in the time of Job. That was actually their arguments. Job, the reason you're facing all this is because you've done something wrong. Why don't you just tell us? Let's get it out on the table. But even Jesus' disciples in John chapter 9, remember they come across this, this person who had been born blind from birth? And remember in John chapter 9, they, the disciples said, Hey, Jesus, Rabbi, who sinned? This person or the parents that this person was born blind? And Jesus straightened them out and says, No, you got it wrong. This is all for the glory of God. And John chapter 9 outlines how that was going to look. Well, that's how these people were treated. They were treated as refuse. And in the mind of this person who was paralyzed, he absolutely needed God and he needed people. And yet he was he felt like he was forsaken by both. And so in this scene, we find that this man has some friends. In fact, it's they're numbered four. And you can actually see them in verse two. And when they brought him a paralytic lying on a bed and seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic. You see, these four men bringing this paralyzed man, they knew that there was only one hope for him. I'm sure the paralyzed man realized there was only one hope for him. And that is Jesus. I'm sure they heard the stories. People were talking. And so they came to this home. They wanted to bring this paralyzed man to Jesus because Jesus seemingly has the power to make someone well. And so they're trying to get in, but they were simply unable. This house was packed out. And so the men could have said, you know, I'm sorry to their paralyzed friend. It's just in your day. Not God's will that you encounter Jesus. We're going to just dump you off here on the side of the road where we found you. They could have just left him there. But no. They believed and they had a heart conviction that Jesus was the only answer for this man. So they couldn't get in the house because it was all packed through, with it, packed up with these scribes and these Pharisees and everybody else that was trying to listen to Jesus. So they apparently went out to the outside where they'd have steps. They climbed their way up and you could actually walk up on the patio roof area there. And they go and they start actually removing tiles and they make a hole. Now, this can you imagine if all of a sudden like roofing materials started being opening up and and tile and dirt and like a different sort of cement or whatever compound they use to hold those tiles together starts falling through and they lower this paralyzed man who is likely tied to a pallet with these ropes and and he's dropped through you can see the dust and you can see a little bit of the daylight and all of a sudden see this pallet and this man this he'd be if he's paralyzed he'd be all withered up he's coming down And they're aiming this pallet so it lands right in front of Jesus. Can you imagine? Oh, what's going on now? You know, I mean, anytime you're around Jesus, just something wild and just out of the ordinary happens. And here comes this man on this pallet. And he lands before Jesus. And notice what is said in the text. Seeing their faith. 
All three accounts of this paralyzed man all speak of the faith of all of them, not just the man. There's something extremely profound about that. You see, it's not just the faith of the individual that needs to be made well. It's the faith of those who bring them. You know, we are so hyper-focused on me, I, right? It's all about me and myself. Jesus is, is very interested in our faith. What moves us together to move to action? I mean, you can see it when, when people will pray for an individual. Or like we as a church, we're, we are trying to together reach the Banjara people, an unreached people group. We are pulling our money, we're our resources, we're sending people, we're sending missionaries. In fact, we're sending missionaries around the world. We need to do the Operation Christmas Child, we need to do the Angel Tree, when we host events just to try to proclaim the gospel or to meet needs in the lives of people. All of that is our faith together coming to bring people to the feet of Jesus. And by the way, that is Christian ministry. We're not trying to get people to adopt a certain lifestyle, a code of ethics, or some family values. We're in the process of bringing people to the feet of Jesus. That's what we're to do. There is one answer and one solution, and it's Christ and him alone. And so these what these people are doing. They're bringing people to the feet of Jesus. And so here this man is, and these scribes are like, what in the world is going on? They're trying to figure this out. And to make Matters worse. Jesus says something that infuriates them. Look what he says. And Jesus said to the paralytic, Take courage, son, my child. Your sins are forgiven. What? Well, you see, for the, the paralytic, even though his theology was a little off, he actually thought perhaps his own sin led to this situation. He knew his greatest need was forgiveness of sins. And when he heard these words from Jesus, he probably thought that he immediately would be made well. Now, what do you mean, forgiveness of sins? You know, you you have to be the one who's offended in order to forgive, right? And if God is offended by our sin, whatever it might be, our misuse of people, our words, our, our lack of love, our, our disrespect, our enmity, our strife, our arrogance, our pride, our wickedness, our lust, our gossip, our despising the people that we're supposed to be loving. You, you know, in order to forgive, you have to be the one who's offended. And Jesus says, I forgive you. Take courage, my son, you're Your sins are forgiven. He doesn't say your sins will be forgiven. Let me give you some real hope here. Your sins are one day going to be forgiven. Nor does he say that they have been forgiven, past tense. He says they are, present tense, forgiven. In order to do that, Jesus has to be the one who's offended. And in order to say those words, he knows of the pain that he must endure to bear this man's sins. Now, everybody in that room knew what was going on. To say that you forgive sins is to claim that you're God. How do you think that's going to go over with the scribes and the Pharisees? Well, verse 3, you don't have to guess. And some of the scribes said to themselves, this fellow blasphemes. And verse 4, Jesus, knowing their thoughts, says, 
Why are you thinking evil in your hearts? Okay, so let me tell you what's going on here. Jesus says, I have the ability to forgive sins. Now he is going to demonstrate that he has the power to actually authenticate that he's God. Now, he knows their thoughts. When they say you're blaspheming, to blaspheme is to take like something that you do as a human to insult the honor of God. Okay, so you use God's name in vain. Okay, you make you just use God's name very frivolously, frivolously. All of that, that's it's insulting to God. That's all blasphemy. But if you are to say that you forgive sins, that is to actually challenge God's honor because you are saying you've got the prerogative to do that only something that God can do. And if unless you are God and they are convinced that he is not, although they're not sure who he is, they're saying there is no way that you can do this. And so Jesus, knowing what they're thinking in their hearts and notice what he says, thinking evil in your hearts. Now, there's something really instructive about that. You and I think that it's sin is just stuff that people could see. It's outward actions, words, deeds, actually evil thoughts. And the Lord knows all about them. He knows them completely. And Jesus, it says here, knowing their thoughts. He said, why are you thinking evil in your hearts? You want to know who I am. You want to know if I really have the authority to forgive sins. Let's settle this once and for all. Am I indeed God? Am I the promised Messiah? And so he said, verse five, which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or to say, get up and walk. Well, let's think about that. It's probably easier to say your sins are forgiven because that's in the spiritual realm. And how could you truly see this transaction? On the other hand, though, it would be very difficult to make a man walk. So they they're thinking, well, it would probably be more difficult to make a man who is paralyzed walk. If you could make a man who is paralyzed walk, then you have the ability to forgive sins. And that's exactly what Jesus is putting in front of these men who Am I? Well, then he says, verse six, but so that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I want you to know I am able. This is my mission. In fact, that's what Jesus is doing. He doesn't want them getting all hung up on miracles. He wants them completely focused on who he is and why he has come. He has come to forgive sins and he wants Every single person to know that. And so he says, so that you will know that I have the ability and the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, get up, pick up your bed and go home. Can you imagine? There's a silence. No one is saying a word. Perhaps they're even all holding their breath. I mean, a man paralyzed and Jesus is saying, get up. Take up your pallet, walk and go home. And he's doing so to authenticate that indeed he could forgive sins. And then suddenly, verse seven, he got up and went home. Can you imagine laying on this pallet? All of a sudden, limbs that were withered are now strong. Perhaps he now is actually moving his arms to untie the very ropes that had him fastened to this pallet. 
Everybody like, oh, what is going on? He actually stands up. He, he picks up the pallet. You've got to see the joy on his face. The scribes and the people in this room are just like, who is this man? He can forgive sins. He can make this man well. Perhaps the man just started dancing. Perhaps he just started praising God. But certainly there was a great ruckus in the room because verse 8, and when the crowds saw this, this house was packed out. They were awestruck and glorified God. They gave public testimony of God's character and his goodness. And they said, who had given such authority to men? Who is this? This is amazing. This man, Jesus, he is God. And so the crowds are awestruck and they're glorifying God. And Jesus settled the issue once and for all. He is the one who is able to forgive sins. You know why that's such good news for you and me? It's because that's, that is our greatest need. Jesus did miracles to authenticate him and his message. He didn't heal everybody. He didn't heal every paralyzed person, every sick person. He didn't cast out every demon out of every person. He did just enough to show the world who he really is. And these have been recorded and no more so that you and I will believe everything we need for life, faith and godliness. God has written in this book and it is truly an issue of faith. Will you trust him and believe or will you say "Uh, uh-uh, and join the scribes and think evil in your heart and say, I don't think so. And I will not believe. But make certain it is Jesus who is able to forgive you. And really, by doing these sort of miracles, he is showing in, the, in his kingdom, there is one day there will be no paralysis, no disease, no sadness. In fact, the book of Revelation says he's going to wipe away every tear from every eye. Just sheer joy, complete wholeness, shalom and wellness and the presence of our glorious king. John MacArthur uh, tells of a turning point in his life. Some of you are familiar with him. He's on the radio. He's a pastor out in California. He's written a lot of books. He's got a very popular study Bible. It's actually has a million copies. What you may not know is he actually was a very good football player. He was so good he got some opportunities to try out for some pro teams. He was kind of a college star, and yet through a series of events in college, including a very tragic car accident that put him on his back for a long period of time, he had sensed that God wanted him to be a pastor. And yet, you know, when you're young, you want to be kind of the football all-star, right? You know, he had an event that was very instrumental in helping him see what God wanted to do in his life. The event was is that when he was kind of finishing up his college career, he was invited to go to a hospital to visit a young girl, a cheerleader, who had been shot through the neck with a bullet and was paralyzed, paraplegic. He was invited to go and to speak to this girl. So MacArthur goes to this hospital room. Here's this girl. She's completely immobilized, laying on a sheepskin, newly paralyzed. The only thing that she can do is talk. And in talking with her, she just came out and said, listen, if there was any way that I could kill myself, I would do it. I'll live like this the rest of my life. All her vitality and her vivaciousness, she thinks, is completely gone. And so John MacArthur went through the gospel, presented Jesus Christ in a very real way. And they had some questions. She had questions. He provided answers. And over time, he had the the privilege of leading this young gal to Christ, where she actually placed her faith and trust in Christ as 
her Lord and her Savior. He actually followed up with her several different times, making visits to her. And on one particular time, she went back and said, she said this. I can honestly say now that I'm glad the accident happened. Otherwise, I may never have met Christ and had my sins forgiven. See, friends, our greatest need is to be forgiven of our sins and to truly know Christ. You need to know something. All your physical maladies, your aches, your pains, your cancer, all the emotional strife that you're going through, your discouragement, your depression, anxiety, your relational breakdown, the problems in your family, your difficulties, financial, whatever they might be, do you know that God is using them to bring you to the person of Jesus? And he is very much actually using others in the process. When we see people that are down, discouraged, they're suffering from the weight of their sin, let's not just give them remedies and saying, ah, you're going to be fine or things will get better. Let us join Jesus in his mission behind enemy lines and bring them to Jesus. For that is the mission and that is our purpose. Can Jesus truly rescue those who are completely far from God, demon-possessed, without hope? Absolutely. And he's doing so today. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for just this amazing passage that clarifies for all time that indeed you are a Savior who cannot be overwhelmed by evil, but overcomes evil with good. For you are able to bring even those who are demon-possessed into the presence of the great King and to allow them to experience the newness of life found in Jesus. And Father, you care about our every need and our hurt and our difficulties, our cancer, our problems. It's meant to drive us to you, where we will experience the first and foremost need of our life being met And that is to experience forgiveness that is found in Jesus. And I thank you that he went to the cross. He knew it when he said it. If sins are to be forgiven, he would pay it. And so he has. So, Lord, we thank you for our salvation that we have in Jesus. For those who are here today who have never trusted him, would they pray with me now and say, Lord, you know about my sin. And finally, I get it today. And I turn from myself and my wickedness and my sin. And I believe in Jesus. I trust him. And I experience the forgiveness of sins that is found in his name. Father, for all of us, may we have a renewed zeal that we serve a risen Savior who has overcome all things. And that we are overcomers in him. So we praise you and worship you. And we go out this morning with awe in our hearts and our minds because of Jesus. He is everything to us. And we pray in his name. Amen.